0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, December 7th, 2020. I'm John Pod the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, our old friend, I think maybe the first guest on the podcast, if not the second Uh Uh, in the time that we've had guests, former commentary columnist, uh, and uh, all-around bon vivant, man about town, Andrew Ferguson. Hi, Andy.
1: How are you? Hi, John. I'm great. I'm great. I prefer the term boulevardier. Uh, You are boulevardier. Thank you. (laughs) I'm boulevardier. Uh,
0: Andy, uh, tell us what you – tell us about your – General mood uh, uh, seven or eight months into uh, Covidia, into the land of Covidia.
1: Well, it um, it changes by the hour, which I guess is probably evidence of some kind of mental disorder. Um, it has a lot to do with the weather. If the sun's out, I feel much better. If uh, we have little snow flurries, the way we did this morning when I got up, uh, that's kind of nice. But then, if it's a gray sky, then I'm sunk into the slew of despond again
0: oh dear well you live in uh, you live just outside dc so um so christine but you didn't see the snow flurries did you
2: christine Uh, there were a few few little flurries
0: you guys are only like you're two miles from each other as the crow flies
1: yeah that's right right so
0: (laughs) um we didn't have any flurries but i will say this i went out for dinner on saturday night in manhattan outside uh on columbus circle at a very fancy restaurant Uh, and, you know, there were heat lamps, and there were sort of wind baffles, and uh, it was 40 degrees. I had on a winter jacket. I had on a sweater. I had on corduroy pants, and um, it was fine for about 45 minutes, and then the cold began to penetrate my ankles and sort of like around the bottoms of my legs, and by about a little after an hour, I was like, we, "We gotta go. Like, I I can't sit here anymore." The the cold had somehow penetrated my entire, and I couldn't like think and all this, and so uh, I'm in. I find this a very despairing fact for this whole. No, it's fine. We'll have outdoor dining. You know, yeah, you don't have to go into restaurants. We'll have outdoor dining even through the winter. I mean, it wasn't 20 degrees. It was 40 degrees. Now, granted, 40 degrees is pretty cold. But, I um, uh, you know, if there's like two weeks like that, that that's it for – that's it. Like, there's no one's going to sit outside
1: except well, this like – Well, yeah. this is just your way of saying you want to get socks for Christmas.
0: Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> uh, if you want to give me a Christmas present, I will accept any Christmas present from, from you. Of course, I don't. Christmas is not my my holiday, and i was was watching with my kids the uh the fantastic s n l skit the night Hanukkah Harry saved Christmas, which you may remember <laughs> is a sort of parody of hallmark children's shows where Santa has the stomach flu, and Hanukkah Harry delivers the Christmas presents and he brings Christmas presents to these two kids and they tear open the box, and a kid goes. It socks, <laughs> and Hanuk Harry says eight pair. Can you believe it? So yes, if you want to send me socks, that 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 would that would be great.
3: But um, but, hey, John. But the restaurants. Yeah. So in New York, at least, so there's a lot of this um sort of uh, temporary construction going up on the streets outside restaurants. They put up these tent kind of structures. Yeah. Now those, that that's not exactly outdoors. To me, that's like they're building more indoor space. Right. So, um, well, where because- I
0: was was outdoors. Like yeah. it, there were umbrellas, so it was like the it was open air, and then there were these plastic sheets. Right, but it wasn't like you know uh, a sukkah, and to use uh, another right. Jewish holiday, um, you know, sukkahs are these uh, kind of temporary, literally temporary structures put up uh according to certain very specific dictates that are supposed to be tempering. you're supposed to eat in them sort of like in the autumn um but, you know, those are like – and you sort of wonder, like, how secure – if you're not supposed to eat, you know, cramped in in indoor spaces. Exactly. Why are these so okay? But they are open on one side, at least, I guess.
3: Well, that, that's what I wonder every time I see these. I don't, are they considered – is this considered outdoor dining or is it considered indoor dining? And, and you make more of it as a restaurant owner because you can't fill your – all uh, what you have already, you can't fill up to capacity.
0: Right. Now, by the way, two things this weekend. So we should, we should, we should talk about. Um, first, there is this uh, video that went viral of this retro restaurateur in Sherman Oaks uh, in, in the Valley uh, uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, her name is Angela Marsden and she uh, it's this sort of amazing video. She has a place called pineapple Hill or something like that. And uh, she built an outdoor structure and the mayor uh, Garcetti of Los Angeles announced that all outdoor dining was to be canceled. And she's walking through, if you haven't seen it, she's walking down and she says, look, this is what I built. This is my thing. But over here is, a, is something that the city has authorized and it's a movie set's catering. So it is literally across an alleyway from her, outdoor space restaurant and the city is forcing her to close but is allowing whatever film is being filmed to have its outdoor catering next to her now forcibly shuttered establishment because movies are deemed an essential operation and she's crying and all of this and it is horrifying right so that's uh, it's one. heartbreaking yeah, yeah. Heartbreaking. Well,
2: and she, she says she, one of the things she says that makes the video clip so powerful is she points to the to the movie catering and says that's safe the the, the mayor said that is safe and then she points to her much more actually aesthetically appealing setup same exact kind of you know distancing and everything and says but this is unsafe that's safe this is unsafe like basically ex- make it make sense yeah. <laughs> it is heartbreaking she, and says. she says i'm being ruined
0: i'm yes. being ruined and, you know, this is my life and they're destroying my life.
3: And it's also maddening because the truth is since this started, media and entertainment, those industries have not been ruined. They have persevered. They, they broadcast. They, they mount productions. Um, when uh, media figures um, complain about um, uh, people protesting uh, shutdowns, they're doing so from their places of work.
2: And can I also point out when's the last time you saw a small business owner interviewed on one of the major news shows? A small business owner. I mean, you see it on Fox News. Tucker Tucker Carlson has people on all the time who are small business owners. I've yet to. I mean, I'm not a huge cable news watcher, but I don't regularly see them. Their perspective brought into this national conversation and it should be. So I think part of it is that you get a lot of, you know, elite media commentators telling people what they should think about small business owners, but you don't hear it from them directly. Right. And this, this video yeah. traveled widely because it was directly right. from a business owner's mouth.
0: Right. Well, I have a, I have a Facebook friend named Greg Hunt. And Greg Hunt uh, is a restaurateur in Manhattan. And um, when I put up this Angela Marsden video, his response was, he said, you know, I, have a pool hall. There's a, a place called Amsterdam Billiards. It's on 76 in Amsterdam. I have a pool hall. The pool hall is forcibly closed by the governor. So no one can come and play pool at Amsterdam Billiards, but you can bowl. You can go to a bowling alley. Why is that? What's this bizarre, um, the discontinuities in these orders? are going to drive everybody, and the the long range political consequences of this, people should not think that just because people are wandering around saying, oh, don't be a baby, we have to close down, we're just trying to kill the virus and all this, that there aren't going to be massive long-term political consequences for the politicians who are making these decisions, in part, because it is all sotto voce. It is all, it's going to be Greg Hunt telling a hundred people how Andrew Cuomo ruined him. And if there are 500 Greg Hunts or there are 500, whatever, you know, that's 50,000 people or a hundred thousand people, you know, that's the kind of thing where margins of victory in a close election go one way or the other, including in places like California and New York, where there's been so much one, basically one party rule for so long uh, that things are already desiccating, you know?
4: It was onerous right. enough when there wasn't a federal backstop or there was a federal backstop in the form of, uh, you know, economic relief for firms that were closed as a result of state mandates. But that ex- that relief doesn't exist anymore. So these they're doing this to people who don't have a net, don't have any backstop to rely on. And you saw, you know, Nancy Pelosi trying to justify her recalcitrance on this point, because Republicans had issued a, a, a smaller relief bill under a trillion, but there was one they were trying to push through in autumn. And Nancy Pelosi had this big dust up where she, you know, she she was defending herself by attacking Wolf Blitzer, calling Wolf Blitzer an agent of Republican propaganda. I mean, really having a meltdown over this sort of thing. And as she's dropped her position, her position is now coming closer to Republicans. Good. Um, but she did so justifying herself by saying well, look, there's a new president. There's a vaccine. There's a new president. You know, now we can we can move because the, the light at the end of the tunnel is upon us. And Andy, you would Andy. expect, well, briefly, you would expect yeah. at the very least, if not reporters, to become, you know, a little irritated by the, the, the notion here that r- relief is on offer only insofar as you vote in the direction that Nancy Pelosi would <laughs> like you to vote. But you would expect at least reporters to fact check her dispassionately on the facts of the matter that she's claiming. There is, in fact, no new president. There is, in fact, no approved vaccine. The conditions that prevailed in October prevail today. And you saw reporters like um, Steve Dennis over at uh, Bloomberg, Senate reporter, reacting to this like, well, what do you expect her to say? What do you want her to say? You know, She's still got the Republican Senate to deal with. Um, That's not your job. That's a flax job. That's somebody who runs block for a political position. At the very least, you should be expected to make note of the inaccuracies in her statement, if not feel a little revulsion over the hostage taking that she's justifying here. But there was not an offer because their position is valid, whatever their position happens to be.
1: Well, you know, I think um, that uh, we're underestimating. Maybe I should just speak for myself, but I've been underestimating the quite apart from the politics, the permanent economic damage that comes from shutting down places like the restaurant in Sherman Oaks and so on. There's this uh, phenomenon they call scarring in in labor economics, which means people essentially losing jobs and then not just sort of waiting around to get another job or looking for another job, but they just drop out of the labor force altogether. And evidently, the... Sophisticated reading of the numbers last week, where the the unemployment rate dropped by what a percentage, one-tenth of a percentage point, um, is actually evidence of this phenomenon happening on a very large scale that people are simply leaving the labor force, which we saw after the huge recession in 08 and 09, um, but this is seems to me to be, it's almost a voluntary kind of self-inflicted wound that we're having here for dubious results. The thing that strikes me over and over again is nobody knows how this virus behaves. And, you know, I was looking at the Times uh, map of the nation yesterday, the COVID map, and it's just this sea of red, you know, Every, every place is on fire. And then you look down onto the right lower corner, and there's Florida. And it's yellow and orange. For some reason, Florida is not on fire the way it was supposed to be when DeSantis came in and started li- trying to lift all of the, the COVID restrictions. Um, meanwhile, other warm-weather states like Arizona are um, – going up in flames. Nobody knows why this is happening. And the idea that you can risk something major, a major body blow to the labor force on the grounds of of uh, prudence when nobody knows what we're protecting against just strikes me as kind of nuts.
0: Well, so, you know, then you have then you have the sort of the bad the bad story which is the other side of this, which is what happens when things are this volatile. Uh, the story on Staten Island of Max Bar and Grill, where you had this kind of uh, revolt last week. Uh, the two owners you know, saying, we're not building an outdoor area because no one's going to go in it. That's not, it's too cold and no one wants, the people want to go into the bar and we're declaring this an autonomous region and getting arrested. And then there's a protest outside and all of this. And apparently on Saturday night they reopened, um, which they weren't supposed to do uh, based on these rules. And they and and a, and a marshal went in undercover to research what was going on. And as they were closing up, uh, marshals approached the car of uh, marshals approached one of the owners to arrest him for having reopened and he plowed his car into one of them breaking, uh, his ankles. I think, I mean, literally it was like a scene out of a movie where the guy ended up like going over the hood of the car. Um, because, uh, apparently the owner panicked. It's not, it's probably that he didn't want to drive the car into the guy, but he was like trying to get away and, and, and he got arrested and the guy is in the hospital and all of that. And that's the other part of this story which is if this goes on and on um there's no defense obviously for for w- what this what this guy did but um you know uh and and of course because they sort of became folk heroes he may have been in some slightly delusional condition of you know uh, martyrdom or or thinking himself a self-martyr and then ended up doing something reckless and really crazily irresponsible could have killed somebody but you know this is what happens when you are doing what is what these politicians are doing which is they are sort of waving their hands and shutting down private industries in the United States this is not how we do things in the United States i mean at the very least if you're going to do it you 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 accompany it with some deep sense of humility or an understanding of the tragedy or something like that but that is not how Garcetti and Newsom and Cuomo and these people behave, they get angry when people say, You're ruining my life. Whereas they could say, Oh my God, you know, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to us. And we don't know what else to do. We don't know what else to do except close down in, interior spaces where people. where there might be super spreading events and we're putting all the pressure that we can on Washington to do what they can. And we're so sorry. We're so sorry that this is happening to you.
4: But then somebody says, well, why, like a judge, why, what is the evidence to justify outdoor closures? And there is no evidence. There's no scientific justification for that. So your only recourse is to get angry and defensive. What else are you going to do? Well... Right. So the
0: outdoor closure, I mean, in LA, you're talking about how like they they sort of declared that people weren't supposed to go out on their bicycles. I mean, that's, that's where, that's where it's, it's very hard aside from the, 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 uh, you know, the labor uh, economics problem, you're talking about a kind of governmental fiat that I I just don't think we've ever really seen before. I mean, I remember after 9-11 that uh, the lower tip of Manhattan below Canal Street was basically under martial law. You know, you couldn't draw, you needed a permit, you needed this, you needed that. And it was very jarring. It was totally understandable. And I guess it happens, you know, like when there's a nuclear accident or something like that, obviously we have to prevent people from, you know, going near a nuclear, you know, three mile Island or, you know, something like that. But uh, it is stunning to me that, you know, this is happening and people, you know, the, the sort of the mainstream media and
3: stuff don't, don't remark on the incredible bizarrery of this. No, you know what they say. And this is, I saw, I saw uh, New Jersey governor, Phil Murphy, um, today, complaining about how people weren't um, observing lockdown uh, rules in New Jersey, and the media response, and and Murphy was, um, of course, open to this. Is well, maybe what you need to do is make make the consequences for disobeying harsher. Um, and uh, he said, "Yeah, it's hard to do that, but yes, yeah, so we're we're looking at that." So, um, this is a dangerous <laughs> dynamic because. That will only exacerbate the the the, the problem. That is right. precisely what what people are objecting to. I,
4: mean, I the don't understand California's closer. The, it's a it's a stay at home order, right? You're not so even supposed to see your neighbors. You're right. supposed to be locked into your home. Um, and Pennsylvania had something not dissimilar that was struck down uh, upon review in an appellate court that found the. The closure of quote non-life-sustaining business violated the for- the First Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment equal protection well, clause.
2: That's, and that's the problem, right? The remedy, the only remedy to these draconian orders, is through the court system. But by the time they work these cases work their way through, even at the speed with which some of them have. Um, it's, you know, it's too late for the businesses, they're out of business. And that's why I think that you see a little more kind of economic vigilantism going on among these individual businesses, because they know, even if they have, if they're even if they're absolutely correct on the law, if they the cost and time of, of filing a lawsuit and having, it win we've had a few of these with the religious question, but look, I mean, as a parent whose kids can't go back to school, I feel like the teachers union should be sued in a class action. Like they're like the Corvair of, you know, of- people right now like sue the union but that's never if that happens that'll be years from now and these kids will already have missed an entire year just like these businesses will be long gone by the time they get any sort of legal remedy.
0: right uh so let me let me pull back for a minute and talk to you about our first sponsor today the bonson group look you've been hearing me say it now for a week vast majority of professional financial and investment advice is awful most financial advisors, lazy, disengaged, uninterested in the real work that is required to pop or properly steward their clients' assets. I have an good authority that a very high percentage of those making a very good living as a, quote, professional wealth advisor, unquote, do not work more than 25 hours a week. And then get into the important stuff, their understanding of how markets work, the intersection of public policy with investing, the relevance of monetary policy and the Fed in modern finance. And you might as well be talking to a teenage kid at a coffee shop. In summary, the work ethic and the intellectual capacity of so many financial professionals, leave a lot to be desired. That is not the case for the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal wealth management firm with over $2.5 billion in assets under management, where every single day is an intellectual journey, where client communications are a way of life, where every bit of their perspective on the economy and capital markets is their own fresh resource and opinion, and where every client is given his own bespoke family office experience. Read their weekly investment commentary at DividendCafe.com. Read their daily market updates at TheDCToday.com. Check out the Bonson Group for a refreshing antidote to the laziness and intellectual spaghetti that is today's investment advice industry. That's the Bonson Group, where an actual economic worldview sits on the foundation of the best investment advice in the industry. Check out DividendCafe.com. And the DCToday.com, and get to know the Bonson Group today for your wealth management needs. Okay, I want to, uh, Andy, I want to pitch a theory to you, and uh, and have you respond to it about what's going on when we read that you know majorities of Republicans or pluralities of Republicans believe that the 2020 election was stolen, even though Joe Biden. Uh, prevailed by tens of thousands of votes in all the states where it is said uh, Donald Trump had the election stolen from him. Uh, because, you know, uh, aside from everything else that that a lot of us have been saying, which is, you know, uh, wow, it's really amazing that uh, people on the other side of the aisle, it was okay for them to think that the Russians had gone in and, st- and, and changed votes by the tens of thousands in 2016, and that therefore the election was illegitimate. But uh, but, but people in America thinking that, you know, something might've happened in the other direction, that's the most horrifying threat to democracy that there has ever been. But forget that for a minute. My, here's, here's I had this, uh, uh, what I thought was an insight thinking about this after some of the coverage of uh, Donald Trump's appearance in Georgia this weekend, which is, that what Republicans think is that uh, the media uh, basically said that Biden was going to win in a landslide using polling as the major means of its, uh, of its assertions. And of course, a lot of us thought that too, or thought it was going to be pretty close. And he did not win in a landslide, though he won by more than four points. Um, and that what you therefore have is the media functioning both as the gatekeeper, uh, as the ref, right, Uh, saying um, election's going to be a landslide. The polls are showing that Trump doesn't have a chance. And then after the election saying, everybody needs to concede right away. You all need to, this is the only fair thing is concede, concede. Anyone who says that, you know, Trump shouldn't concede or the election wasn't won is is an opponent of American democracy and is terrible, right? So they're the gatekeepers and the refs, but that in the in the eyes of so many conservatives and Republicans, they are also on the team. They're on the other team, so it is not just that that um, that they are they are calling they're sort of calling the game, but they're calling the game while playing for the other team, and that this is not fair, and that therefore the election was stolen because they're declaring a victory. Uh, while uh, having a rooting interest and even a conflict of interest and maybe even a monetary interest in the result. And therefore, maybe the election wasn't stolen literally, but it was stolen seriously. Andy, what do you
1: think? That's a very clever kicker there, the seriously uh, distinction. Very good. Um, Well, uh, first off, all um, questions of polling uh, now of all times um, should be considered deeply suspect after what we've seen not just over the last month but over the last 20 years uh, polling has a very limited utility and especially sort of up and down kind of questions about issues that the respondents probably haven't given a lot of thought to, that's just sort of dropped on their plate by the pollster, and then the pollster says, do you like it or not? Um, Those things strike me, those kinds of exercises strike me as almost completely worthless. Um, But having said that, it seems to me also that what is being measured here is something real, which is, as you put your finger on it, it's the degree of alienation People who call themselves Republicans feel towards the, I guess what we'd call the mainstream institutions of American life, particularly media. Um, and uh, polling, a polling pollster calls you on your phone. That is the establishment calling you on the phone. And uh, Republicans are not going to answer the way they think the establishment wants them to. Um, so in a sense, this is measuring something real. I don't know, you know, how far you can take that, though.
4: Right. Um, I mean, there's also we have to caveat this sentiment <clears throat> with the potential that it it doesn't reflect a real opinion, but it does reflect a desired opinion, and I think Georgia will um, be illustrative of this. The Democratic Party spent the last two years, I've talked about this before, spent the last two years saying that the 2018 election, the gubernatorial election was stolen for a variety of reasons. Governor Kemp, who was the Secretary of State at the time, invalidated uh, votes and closed down polling places and purged from the voter rolls voters who would otherwise have participated. So Stacey uh, Abrams 56,000 vote loss was not valid and he's an illegitimate governor and what have you. And what did they do? They went back to the polls two years later and voted Joe Biden the president. Republicans may experience something very similar in, because there's one avenue to achieve political power in this country. It is through the ballot box. And as much as you want to say, well, it's all you know garbage, at the end of the day, you still go back to the ballot box and participate in the election because your objective is to achieve political power and to prevent the other side from achieving political power. And your participation in that process is a vote of confidence in it. So if you were to, if you know, if we saw Republicans really shun this thing, as Lin Wood and Sydney uh, Powell have said they should, um, then you'll you'll see a market drop off in Republican participation in these in this uh, January fifth runoff elections. I don't think you will. I think you will see market turnout, possibly even record turnout, in part because what matters here is control of the Senate, and they know the control of the Senate is in the balance, and. To, object to, the, to, to reject participation in that process would hand the process over to Democrats. So if they really believed that it was an invalid process, you, you'd see some sort of a rejection of it, but I don't think you will. I think this is really just a narrative that Republicans express in order to not offend certain people, not offend their voters, not offend Donald Trump, not offend polite opinion on the right, which which really does is adhering to this narrative as a means of exculpating their failures in November, but it's not a real thing. It's something they 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 say because they feel like they have to say it.
3: but couldn't they um think it is a real thing um, but then also uh, not want to discourage uh, Republican voters because in the end that's all they have anyway despite the fact that they may not see a fair uh, election, supposedly. Well,
2: I just yeah. think
4: that's so contradictory that it it invalidates the notion that this is an, a flawed or, or corrupt process. I and mean, if it was a flawed and corrupt process, you'd act that way. And acting that way would be establishing commissions and leaning on your legislators to, to perform commissions and, um, you know, rejecting the process outright and then and doing what Lynn Wood said you should do, which is to say that these Republicans stabbed you in the back. Don't validate their, their actions and their efforts. Don't head to the polls to give them a victory. And we've seen nothing but Republican officials in the states saying, at the same time, Donald Trump probably was cheated out of this race, or at least implying that, and then also, make sure you head to the polls and vote because it's the most important election ever.
2: Right. So the the legitimacy of elections becomes just another tool in the toolbox for winning elections, right? It's a weird sort of thing. And the the current secretary of state, whose name I'm blanking on in Georgia, has a good short little op-ed in The Wall Street Journal today, which says as much. He says, look, Stacey Abrams ran this playbook already. She she claimed it was fraudulent. She raised a ton of money for her own organization on the back of this fraudulent claim. He's like, this is exactly the playbook Donald Trump is now following. He's raising a ton of money off of these claims, particularly in Georgia, that these are fraudulent elections. And the danger, long term for those of us who have some sort of sense of the need to have faith in our institutions is that this is bad for our the the institution of government right we don't want to use this as a kind of cynical ploy in every election and both sides have already now proven they're willing to do that so i think it's important to call it out and, and the fact that kelly loeffler in her debate over the weekend wouldn't say that she thought Donald Trump uh, had lost the election is not a good thing it's not a good I mean, thing we've,
4: we've seen this for years this is a, this is a condition that democrats have incubated and brought into the world which is that there is power and agency in a victimization narrative right but there's not, not a lot of, of power so, and agency in being in control of your environment
0: right well this is the big thing cuz trump you know as usual spoke the you know spoke the stage directions in the rally in Georgia on Saturday night. He said, quote, we're all victims. Everybody here, all these thousands of people here tonight, they're all victims, every one of you. Victims, the president of the United States who claims to be a billionaire many times over, who you know gets to be the president after coming down a stupid escalator, and then 16 months later winning the presidency of the United States is a victim, just like somebody from Valdosta, Georgia, who got the presidency stolen from him, right? So the and victim just like Stacey Abrams, just right. like, He he is so, now
2: Stacey Abrams,
0: <laughs> right? So so and you know what? As Noah said, Stacey Abrams rode her victimization into a position of, of, of extraordinary prominence um, and argue, you know, and we're gonna be arguing over how what her role was in helping Biden to win Georgia for as long as, you know, as long as anybody really wants to pay attention to this. But um, that narrative is very powerful. And what's more, I can understand entirely uh, the, the animal cunning that is leading Trump to go down this route, which is it really will freeze the Republican Party uh, in place uh, for the next four years if he actually decides that he wants to run again, which I think is still very much an open question, but he certainly will want to will preserve that option, right? And so the best thing for him is Nobody is allowed to come in and be the next Republican because there shouldn't be a next Republican. I should be the guy in the White House, and I'm going to come back and take what's mine. And if enough Republicans believe this, nobody else can get any national purchase. So him saying, you're a victim, and I'm the ultimate victim of your victimization, I think, is a very canny strategy and i think it goes back to what i was suggesting at the beginning which is that effectively republicans believe that the media are so unfair and unjust that the media saying you got to you got to concede proves that he was the election was stolen that every moment that someone goes on uh, you know that uh, jonathan karl says this or jake tapper says that or and i'm now using people who are not you know, hostile to the right. You know, Steve Kornacki says this, Jake Tapper says that, Uh, you know, uh, John Carl, who edited a conservative paper at Wesley and says the other thing and all that, that just strengthens the idea that the election was stolen.
4: But then it also strengthens the idea that they're just saying that because they can't bear to give these people the satisfaction of saying, yeah, you're right.
0: Well, no, but 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 it matters that they say it you see it matters that the right says the election was stolen because once you say it you are opening you're open to it whether you believe it ultimately what i'm saying is it doesn't matter whether you believe technically that dominion did this or it doesn't matter that technically you think that the poll workers you know invented the ballots in some existential Gogol's overcoat sense The election was stolen because no one on the, you cannot get a fair shake if you're a conservative in America.
1: Well, the other side of that is that the press is going to exploit that uh, to the hilt. You know, there's, I guess it was Saturday, the, the post, Washington Post ran a completely invented pseudo piece of journalism or piece of pseudo journalism where they canvassed I can't remember what 220 every uh, republican
0: of, in congress every republican uh, in the house yeah,
1: member and and and, uh, no. and, and said yeah. did trump win or lose the election did trump lose the election and there is no way that a self-respecting republican congressman wants to walk into that briar patch with the washington post so most of them just didn't respond which the, then the post counted as a uh, a, a, an expression of belief that Trump won the election, uh, which gave them the headline that they wanted when they got the idea for the story, I'm sure, which is uh, most Republican congressmen uh, think that Trump won. You know, it, it, it was absolutely right. concocted, In utterly fact, artificial right. exercise. It wasn't even really journalism. And yet I've had friends send this story to me and say, look, look at your party. See, see how crazy they all are now. And, uh, you know, there's nothing stopping CNN or The Washington Post or The Times from doing this kind of thing week after week after week.
0: Right. Well, in fact, in that story, two out of the 249 Republicans canvassed said Trump had won had actually affirmatively said that Trump had won most of them refused to answer why not because not just cuz they didn't want to be thrown in the briar patch cuz it's like basically screw you yeah, like don't right. use don't use me to create a civil war in my party like you're actually you are trying to foment a civil war in my party
4: and i am not going to play in your liberal sandbox well there's two things to that <clears throat> one This happens all the time. It's not the first time that Republicans have been asked. Every Republican is canvassed to account for something that another Republican did. Granted, this is the president, but it's not unusual for, you know, you you play the counterfactual game. What if a Democrat did blank? Every Democrat would be asked about it. And then, you know, liberal partisans say, no, give me an example of that. Well, here you go. This is the example of that. At the same time, though, and it's really frustrating to hear, oh, you know, Kelly Conway sort of said something that implied that Donald Trump had actually lost the election. We get this headline every two days, and it's really obnoxious. But at the same time, you wouldn't be having that headline if Donald Trump had not refused to concede the election that he lost.
0: Right. Well, none of this constitutes a defense of Trump for me. I'm just saying that if you want to understand why uh, this... Trump's id, Trump as the id of the Republican Party continues to be a successful play for him, it is because he is evoking this, we are all victims. And what are they victims of? They are victims of a liberal, a, you wouldn't even, a liberal tendency that is controlling the high, you know, that is controlling sort of the high uh, mount, the high plains or whatever you want to call it, the high ground. Of American political culture, the universities, the media, um, and you know, and and now basically, the, one of the houses of Congress and 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 the presidency, um, and uh, you can't break through them and and show business and 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 uh, Hollywood, and so they they control everything and they treat us like garbage and they caricature us and they make fun of us and they they disrespect us and we're all victims of them. Now people like Andy and Andy and me well, like we've been we've been friends for you know going on more than 3 decades and dealing with this idea on the right that you know everything is just so incredibly unfair has been a that's like a, a standard issue problem <laughs> at every you know basically you go to any Republican conference or or conservative meeting And people whine for an hour about how the media or so on. That's been the case forever, right? But now it's really got a mass following. I would say because the president has harnessed it.
1: Well, that and and it's just been it's been institutionalized on the right too, with Fox News and um, all of the various pseudo-news sources that have arisen on the right. So it's, right. it's, it's popularized that idea. But it also,
2: and, doesn't it also, I'm sorry to interrupt, but doesn't it also provide an emotional uh, experience for uh, conservative voters, Republican voters, that they really haven't had in a very long time, right? I mean, everyone rallied around the flag post 9-11 with, with George W. Bush, but there's a kind of um, obsession with Trump on the right. That I don't share, but that I look at and it's all in a weird way the mirror image of the of the obsession with Barack Obama, for example. Like there there's a strain the cult of personality satisfies a deeply human felt need. And so that's why when it's I mean, we all mocked it when it was Obama and now, you know, the right's getting mocked for doing it with Trump, but but it is, I think John's right, that we should try to understand it if we're going to avoid it in the future. If we think it's bad for our politics, we have to understand what it is. And that emotional appeal is far more powerful than any policy-making suggestions that, that Trump has made or even that Obama made. And it's really, really connects to people. And it's why AOC, who's, who's you know, not the sharpest tool in the, in the shed, is, connects to people. It's the same yeah. thing. It's emotional. Well, you know, I remember Romney,
0: when Mitt Romney made his acceptance speech in in 2012 at the Republican convention, which was a bad speech, rewritten by by entirely written by Stuart Stevens, the his uh, uh, chief consultant, who has now decided that everything that he ever did was a lie and the Republican Party is just a racist coalition. Uh, which, of course, raises the question of why he hasn't returned the 60, 70, 80 million dollars he made as a Republican (laughs) consultant or, you know, given it and then gone to a mountaintop in Carpathia and, you know, to a to a monastery to to atone for his sins. Um, uh, But nonetheless, so he wrote this and, you know, uh, Romney said in in Stewart's uh, telling, you know, Obama says he wants to, you know, the sea levels will change and the this and blah, all this wonderful thing. I want to get you a job. And um, it was a terrible line because, first of all, the president doesn't get you a job. But second, because this was like, Obama's an aspirational figure. I'm not. I'm not here to be somebody that you can believe in. I'm here to have to 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 be transactional with you. Vote for me I'll get you a job. Well first of all people know that that's not the way it works, but it was almost like I can't even I can't even promise to be a kind of person that you're proud to vote for or that or that who will somehow fill the emotional need fill an emotional need for you, which all politicians do. I'm, 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 I'm avoiding that, I'm evading it, right? It was a terrible speech. The convention did Romney no good. The one moment where he rallied America and the Republicans behind him and made them excited was that first debate where he basically said, I am, uh, I am a moral and spiritual opponent of the Obama worldview. I believe in this America. I want to be the representative of this America, not that America. And people got very excited.
3: But isn't there something of this, um, this uninspiring sort of um, vote for me, I'm, I'm a Volvo message um, in Biden's appeal? I don't think so.
0: I honestly think that what, what I mean, this is a, Biden said, I'm not crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I want to heal America. I want America. America is a better place than Donald Trump says it is. And I'm a normal person and he's a crazy person and I am not going to be crazy. That's different from saying, I'm going to get you a job. He didn't say I'm going to get you a job. He said, I have a plan,
4: but it did, but no one cared about what his plan was. I don't know. Was. I kind of, I, I don't think it was entirely off here. I mean, there was, there's a, to the extent that both Donald Trump and Barack Obama managed to harness a chip on the shoulder of their respective coalitions that offenses to them both barack obama and donald trump were perceived to be offenses directed against them themselves their, their voters they had they had become avatars of their own personal sense of uh, lack of fulfillment in life and that anything that that was perceived to be in a slight against them was a slight against themselves personally. I don't see anybody evincing that kind of sentiment for Joe Biden. I don't see anybody identifying with Joe Biden as an extension of their own self-conception.
1: Yeah, but yeah, I agree with but, that. But, I think yeah. that one of the attractive things about Biden is precisely that he's a counter to what uh, Christina, uh, Christine was describe, uh, describing as, you know, th- that, that um, speech that the first speech that uh, Obama gave for Biden was the key passage was, you know, you won't have to think about him every day. Um, He's not going to be in your face all the time. Yeah. But that doesn't,
0: yeah, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't provide an emotional connection. It just means that he doesn't blot the sun out.
1: Well, I think it does mean that there that whatever emotional connection he's got or that he's promising is not going to be the consuming uh thing that defines obama in
2: It'll be yeah, it'll be weird stories like he was, you know, somehow broke his foot while pulling his dog's tail in the shower, or whatever. I can't even follow what that story was. I didn't even want to have that in my mind and try to figure it out. But it'll be lots of weird little, you know, gaffes and little, you know, Grandpa Simpson-esque kind of right. identification. And Who identifies
4: with that? Who's like, well, we could have all fallen in the shower with our right. dog? How
2: uh, Pulling you our dog's fallen tail fallen in the shower with your dog. <laughs> his
4: tail.
1: Joe Biden. That was all the dog
2: us. in the yeah. shower.
1: <laughs> uh guys. You don't want to know.
0: but i'm just saying it's not like i'm not gonna be anything to you i it's more like vote for me you're gonna be so relieved you're gonna be grateful to be relieved that things aren't as crazy as they were before it's not like i'm gonna fulfill all your wishes and hopes and dreams but it is like I'm going to take you in, we'll have a cup of coffee, it'll be calm, you were just in this abusive relationship. He's our rebound president,
2: he's our rebound president, after a volatile relationship,
0: (laughs) and you've broken up, now he's
2: your rebound, and it's not going to last, but, you know, it's calming. (laughs) Right.
1: Well, you know, one thing, you know, I I can't say enough good things about that, actually, because um, the cult of personality that you saw that we mocked with Obama and that we stood back and watched horrified with Trump, um, those things are profoundly anti-Democratic or anti-Republican, small-R Republican. Anyway, you are not supposed to have a politics that obsesses you and that takes over all aspects of your thinking in your life. And that's what those guys were promising to their followers and yeah. and still do promise. And And that is not a healthy thing in self-government
0: no it's totally unhealthy and of course i i don't know i mean it is all the ultimate you know this is what happens when you have a country that uh where 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 people are increasingly people of no faith or no religion or anything like that yeah. which is that 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 need has to be fulfilled somewhere and the worst possible place you can fulfill it is politics because politics shouldn't play this shouldn't be in this yeah you're living in a nightmare world if if uh, politics is religion by definition it's i it's idol worship uh, of, of the worst sort and then it also it it makes politics too central to life and 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 that's where we are Trump you know Republicans have always avoid have, have, have at least theoretically avoided or spoken against this tendency though it's very hard not to feel it or live it or be in it if you're you know like working in a white house or something like that uh trump of course has encouraged it because that's why he's in politics is for the worship
1: you know the the uh it reminds me of the my favorite line from this from his um rally in georgia saturday night i guess, yeah, saturday night was um his admission, it's one of those sort of moments of insouciance that, <laughs> that he kind of stumbles into once in a while, um, where he says, oh, God, um, um, sorry. Anyway, it was the, the, he, he sort of insouciantly said, well, um, you know, I've worked harder on this, meaning overturning the election, I, on this in the last three weeks, than I've worked on anything in my entire life. And then you think about that, you think, well, what is also notable about these last three weeks? We haven't had to look at Donald Trump. He like totally went to ground. And now we know why, because he was actually working. So imagine if he had taken the first four years or or the, the four years of his tenure in the White House and actually worked. He would have been out of our face. We wouldn't have had to deal with him every day. There wouldn't have to be new tweets and, and ridiculous press conferences that then dominate the news cycle for 24 hours until the next press conference. Um, it was a startling admission, and it sort of gave you a sense of you know, how things could have been, how great it could have been if, if, there was a, if there was a Trump administration where Trump was just kind of working and not coming out to the press room every day.
0: Um, let me uh, let me pull back uh, for our second sponsor today, ExpressVPN. Does it make sense that the same company that controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? What about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries are, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between your online activity and those tech juggernauts. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address, something big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. So stop handing over your personal data to big tech monopolies that mine your activity and sell your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash commentary to get an extra three months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary right now to learn more. Um, Abe, uh, uh, the, I think the State Department has now issued a report that confirms that these uh, mysterious, uh, the, the mysterious sickening of embassy personnel or uh, uh, American personnel, particularly in Havana, but also in a couple of other places, Uh, in 2017, I believe uh, was likely the result of targeted microwave attacks uh, on personnel by foreign actors, meaning that directed microwaves were sent into rooms specifically that ended up uh, giving people vertigo, uh, making them sick, interfering with some of their cognitive faculties and facilities. And uh, so this this story came out, I think, Friday night. And uh, why isn't this leading every newscast? Why
3: isn't this the biggest story in the world? There's been, and this has happened over the, 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 certainly during the Trump presidency and and, uh, somewhat prior to, but um, sort of the replacement of news that matters um, with news that can be useful. Um, Useful either um, in a partisan sense or generally in the um, sort of, Culture warization of everything, right? So um, um, important stories that you know a communist regime um, attacking uh, Americans with 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 high tech weapons. Um, this is a big story. It's not that useful in terms of partisanship and in terms of the culture war. If you look back at how the Abraham Accords were were, were covered, um, they, they they broke through to front pages and headlines not so much as a transformative um, um, uh, policy that kind of resets the Middle East. They, to, to the extent that um, th- what was important about them was that they involved Donald Trump, um, so therefore it could, it could be seen as uh, uh, something bad somehow, and that um, social distancing and masks weren't um, uh, rigorously adhered to in the signing. So it fits into this, um, the, the culture war in the broadest sense. Uh, there's nothing here for, for any of that. There's nothing in the, in the Cuba story. Yet, uh, if they can find something, um, then then it will become a bigger story, not because it's important geopolitically um, and in terms of uh, foreign policy, but because it, if, it, if it can fit somehow into The culture war, or um, the the Trump saga, then 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 it will become a big story.
0: Um, Noah, how how what's interesting about this is uh, that it has the quality of uh, something that you would say, "Oh, come on, that's just like lunacy. That's just like what crazy people think." That you know that uh, foreign intelligence uh, agencies are beaming microwaves at our people to make them sick, Um, except it's true. So if it's
4: true, what do we do about it? Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I struggle um, to see the strategic rationale behind this sort of thing, except insofar as what Abe said is the, the muted response domestically allows you to... You know, and it's not just Havana, but it's also Beijing and Moscow uh, allows you to uh, handicap the diplomatic corps and get away you with mean, it allows them to allows you the adversarial power yes right allows okay them to yeah handicap the diplomatic corps and get away with it without any repercussions um in part because you know you saw like Mike Pompeo hasn't said anything about this. everybody's afraid of how it'll play um, the it it would compel Washington to inaugurate what will be in essence an international incident um and, and uh, arguably an act of war and so far as it's an assault on uh, on american property embassies are american soil sovereign american soil um so or consulate uh properties so it's you know it's a thorny matter and it's one that probably doesn't and shouldn't be adjudicated in the public square it's the kind of thing that the public well, maybe should be aware of them, should not be aware of our responses to these sorts of things, which may not necessarily be diplomatic in nature. Um, but nevertheless, the, the muted public response to these sort of things in the among the journalistic class suggests that you can do this stuff with impunity and get away with it, and nobody really minds all that much, I, which is a really dangerous condition. Uh,
3: I just realized precisely how this could become a more covered story. If you frame it as um, the release of this assessment, is the Trump administration's uh, parting effort to tie Biden up on Cuba.
2: I was going to say, it's like right. a mini Iran, right? Because remember, right. the opening yep. of Cuba, much praised in the press because they all figured they'd go party in Havana when yep. Obama did it. Right. Has, this actually is, a re- this weirdly should be considered in, in the course of our uh, diplomacy or lack thereof with Cuba and how Obama policy carried over into the Trump administration and why they would even be doing this. and, and But it just strikes me, and we were talking about this earlier, that you know, here's something that actually does sound like a real conspiracy theory, but it's not. And yet the stuff that we're calling conspiracies are, have clear factual basis. <laughs> I mean, it's it's yeah. a strange world right now, strange time. But I, I actually believe that this is something that should be taken very seriously and would be, and certainly was when we were in the midst of a Cold War. Um, but the idea that this doesn't have some, uh, that there isn't some media response that's been shaped by how enthusiastic they were about uh Cuba not being a threat at all and how we should all just open up all the borders and oh Castro Schmastro. I mean that was a real theme for many, many years during the Obama administration. Right.
0: Well I mean I, I think there is something to the idea that that this transformation of the newsrooms that we have been talking about forever, um, or you know, at least for you know the the what the, the the transformation of the woke newsroom um the sort of the the ending of foreign bureaus the fact that uh, everybody who you know made their bones in american journalism and became major figures by by spending time abroad by reporting from abroad by by looking at how america you know interacted with with, with other countries like that there's almost none of that anymore and so people who would actually say what, our diplomats are having microwaves beamed in their heads that are making them sick and might, might actually have long-term consequences for their cognition? Like, I know those people. You know, the, these are the people that I drank with for three years in Dubrovnik or, you know, where, wherever. And so this was a real personal experience for many people in journalism and now you are much more likely to get a major job in american journalism journalism because you worked at some you know refinery 29 writing about fashion and and TikTok than you would because you made your bones working at local papers and then going and being sent off to a foreign bureau and getting seasoned over time so that you then came back and wrote about the world with some experience not to be too get off my lawn, and Andy, you're even more get off the lawn than I am in this respect.
1: No, no, you just passed me. I did not. <laughs> yes, you're way ahead of me, way ahead of me now. Yeah, but
0: you actually like you you actually you were you do reporting and stuff like that. I just sit around and criticize other people's reporting. Well,
1: that's why you're you're uh, you're more often right than I am. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's a it's a, the thing that struck me about this story was. Um On one hand, it's horrifying. on the other hand, it's the triviality of what they uh, what the Cubans or the Russians or whoever's doing this uh, you know it's it's it doesn't seem to have any long-term um, agenda behind it except for just harassment of individual diplomats. And I guess the larger point would be um, to let the US know that they have this power and that they can deploy it when they want, but it's there's something so so uh, picayune and um, about the harassment that just strikes me as very odd. I I don't see what the what the game plan is for them.
0: Well, I'm I'm fascinated because you know everybody's been uh, talking about this show on Netflix, The Queen's Gambit, which is a story of a of a 1960s era uh, chess genius who comes to represent uh, America in the Cold War matches against the Soviet Union. The show ends with the big world championship in Moscow being played by Beth, uh, the heroine, against uh, these Russians who are said to all work together, unlike the Americans who are too ornery to work together and they help each other and they solve problems and they, they, they do all this. And they're very civil, they're very civil, the russians and they're they're wonderfully complimentary of her when she wins and they congratulate her on being good and they're very, they're, they're they're so they're so civil and it's all so civil and of course there's not no, there's no relation to what things were actually like in the cold war chess matches where you know most famously bobby fisher played boris spasky in 1972 um, and uh, both Fisher and Spassky were schizophrenics. And I'd say that literally, they were both paranoid schizophrenics. And Spassky's key thing that he worried about, and he wore hats, he did stuff during during certain matches where he wore hats literally with tinfoil in them because he became convinced that the Americans or his rivals, if they were not the Americans, um, were beaming, attempting to beam microwaves into his head to interfere with his... Uh, chess playing. So uh, this was always like a Joe, oh, you know, the tinfoil hat idea sort of came in part from Spassky, who famously put tinfoil in his hat and wore it playing playing chess matches. Except, what if Spassky got this idea because senior officials in the Soviet Union? knew perfectly well that the soviet union was experimenting with microwave technology in the late 60s early 70s and was attempting to perfect it and said to him you better watch out because the americans are probably doing this to you and of course then got into spasky's head and then ruined his life because he was convinced this was happening at all times that's what what's interesting to me is that everybody thought this was faux oh, oh it's so funny spasky's such a crazy person but it would appear like working backwards from what has happened here, that that was a real thing that the, that the Russians have been working on forever. And if the Cubans have it, that probably means the Russians have it or had it, right? Like, again, I think Andy's right. God knows why they're doing it or what they're, what, what, why they're experimenting with it or why it happened
4: or if it's happened before. And we also don't know if there's been a response. Well, the New York Times reported on this very report, on this very issue, that the Soviet Union was <clears throat> engaged in efforts to bombard American diplomatic uh, uh, facilities with microwave radiation. And it was reported at the time. It was reported in 1979.
0: Okay, so there you go. But... But obviously, all these sorts of things have gotten much, you know, probably much more targeted and focused, and you can do more with them and manipulate them better. And all that, God only knows. But we have no reason to know what our response has actually been, right? I mean, what we know is that some of the diplomats themselves claim that nothing has been done in their behalf. That's in the New York Times story. and They're suing the government and all of that, and one can understand that. But we don't know whether or not there has been, there have been, you know, private threats or whatever, and who knows. But um, I think it's more striking that what people want to talk about is, um, you know, is the latest Wokey McWokenstein crap, rather than a story about how American diplomats were being uh, attacked by science fictional technology. I mean, you know isn't that a bigger noose isn't that like the fulfillment of some weird amazing stories you know uh, the hard science fiction thing from nineteen sixty seven isn't that like isn't that sort of a bigger story than than i don't know what i guess Then not.
1: overturning the election
0: yeah, then overturning the election that's right which really which really uh, doesn't matter as much andy um we are missing your uh, your regular uh, commentary work, not only in commentary but other places, because you have uh, stepped back to uh, work on a on a book,
1: right? I uh, yes. Yeah, speaking of the Cold War, I'm um, I uh, I'm writing a book about uh, Richard Nixon and his uh, sort of place in American. I guess, mythology, I would say, um, which sounds pretty high-toned. But it's actually a fascinating way to spend a pandemic, is sitting around with a bunch of books about Richard Nixon. I wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln several years ago, and it was much more pleasant to sit around thinking about Abraham Lincoln than to sit around thinking about (laughs) Richard Nixon.
2: But it's perfect for Uh, the paranoid times we're in. That's great. (laughs) Exactly. I'm
1: starting to get a little paranoid myself. I have all these pictures of Nixon and sometimes they start talking to me and that's <laughs> a little slightly worrisome but um yes so uh, it it kind of occurred to me too that there's going to be a whole rash of Nixon stuff coming up because 2024 will be the 50th anniversary of his resignation. So unfortunately there's going to be a lot of 50th anniversary Watergate things and uh that sort of stuff um his trip to china and that but um so i think we're going to have a lot of nixon in our future but uh i hope i figure out a way to say something fresh
0: you know we're we're, we've heard some of this in the last two weeks right i mean it's like one of the one of the weirdest things that people are saying is like you know even nixon in 1960 (laughs) i mean he had the election stolen from him but he conceded Which, of course, is a pretty fun, I mean, in an odd way, you know, it's like to say, look, Trump should concede because Nixon, Nixon believed, fully believed with some credible reason to believe it, that, that the 1960 election was stolen from him in Cook County by the Daily machine and and in Texas, but he conceded anyway because America needed him to concede.
1: Well, actually, it is. A, it, he, he he behaved very honorably about it. There was a, a reporter for the, the New York Herald Tribune, which was kind of the vaguely Republican opposite to the New York Times back then. And um, the guy was really going to town and amassing tremendous amounts of evidence that uh, in Cook County, um, in Illinois, and in several different counties in Texas, that the vote totals were um, were, were simply implausible or if not impossible and um nixon actually called in the reporter and said please stop that your series um that you're running it's bad for the country and nixon went through um all the various hot spots in the world for this reporter and said you know if we keep keep at this we lose confidence in ourselves the the rest of the the world starts to lose confidence in the validity of our government then then it's going to be bad here it's going to be bad there be bad there and um the guy stopped the guy stopped this running the series in the herald tribune it's a very strange thing you know nixon is this is why it's kind of fun to write about because he is so hard to figure out he has these moments of genuine nobility and kindness and patriotism in him and then he's he was clearly a scoundrel of the first order at other times so
0: it's uh he is the most you know you'd have to say he is the most complicated person ever to be president <laughs> yeah probably yeah, yeah. almost certainly the most the the most uh, the most complicated my my favorite Nixon story uh was told to me by Leonard Garment who was his um personal lawyer, was his partner at Mudge Rose in New York and, you know, sort of like was the Jewish liaison in the white, but very close friend of, uh, of, of, of Nixon's and um, was on the plane with Nixon the night in 1972 when he won the election in the, what was then either the, the largest or the second, I think it was the largest landslide in American history, right? It was like 6137, yeah. something like that. So he won by like 24 points. I mean, think about that for a minute. Like it's almost science fictional to think that such a thing happened. He won this gigantic election and he was flying on the plane and he was holding a scotch and he looked at at Garment and said, now we'll get the sons of bitches. (laughs) Like that was his response to having been validated in a way that this guy who had always felt like he had his nose pushed to the window and was like rejected by all this, like he had just, he had just been validated in a way that almost no human being has ever been validated in the history of this planet. And that he'd been seeking his entire life. And he went dark and bleak and black (laughs) rather than to say, you know, I did it. I did it. What a great country. What a Now we can really unite America. Yeah, exactly. So he was like, now we'll get the sons of bitches and the sons of bitches got him instead. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Andy, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you Uh, for having me. We
0: will, uh, please return your many phone calls. (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) and, um,
1: Sorry about that.
0: That's okay. I think uh, you know, it adds color. Adds, I think it, it, sure, yeah, I think it, it
1: humanizes sense. me a little bit. It, it does sort of takes yes. me down from my yeah. pedestal. Yeah, sort of like my Nixon story
0: humanizes yeah. Nixon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go get the sons yeah. of bitches next time, John.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, and uh, so for um,
3: Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.